It was a painful stretch of road, and each time we drove it, she would grip the arms of her chair until her knuckles turned white. And even when I slowed down, she would hold her breath, trying not to see the curves or the rocks or the sheer drop-offs. For three-quarters of an hour, we would wonder aloud why we drove it, when there were campgrounds and cabins closer than this one. And Terry and Tracy had moved away, and he didn't even use it anymore. And why did we still go there every year? And we vowed again her stomach wouldn't have to endure another trip. But a left turn up and into the forest put the pavement behind us, and the dirt roads, never maintained except for grading once or twice a season, turned the trip into a bouncing crawl, and color always returned slowly to her face, icy nervousness gradually giving way to relaxed warmth, and then excitement. Here was the tree a ranger had pushed to the brush while we waited patiently behind an old tan station wagon, almost overspilling with children, and the youngest boy made faces at us, and I made faces back, and she laughed and couldn't stop until finally, tears running down her cheeks, she begged for no more faces through halting, giggling breaths. There was where that deer stood, right at the side of the road, and it stayed there, even when we stopped the car right next to it so that its breathing fogged the windows, and she clapped her hands like a little girl, which finally startled it. But its breath remained on the window long enough to keep the moment magical as we closed the gap to the cabin. And then, by the time we got there, she'd be ready to jump out and twirl, sighing, her head leaning back, and her arms extended as she breathed air free of the cars and the factories and the desks and the telephones. And as often as not, she'd stop and look at me, her eyes suddenly predators, her lips curling up in a half-smile. I'd stand there, arms full of clean linens and bread and canned soup, and I'd ask her why she did that when my arms were full, and she'd call me her big, strong man in her sing-song voice, and I'd nearly drop everything trying to get us to the door and inside. Then she was pulling off my clothes and throwing them on the floor next to the spilled groceries, and I'd fumble with the door again to close it, and she'd laugh at me through her kisses and ask me if the squirrels or the sparrows were embarrassing me. Later, in the shower, she would lather herself off of me, her eyes tracing the path of the washcloths. She always packed washcloths, bright ones with patterns of roosters or frogs or ducks or polka dots. Her mouth pursed in concentration, and I would watch the water turn her blonde hair brown and think of how it made her look so young again like she did back on the green. It was there, in front of a negligible mass of twisted metal someone in the department had dared to label art, standing in the shadow of Anderson Hall, that I first kissed her. And it was there, sixty-two units later, that she told me she would make of me a man, and my childish days were behind me, and I would be her husband. And as she turned the tassel away from my face, I kissed her and whispered that she would never tame me. And even though I meant it as a joke, she stared up at me and told me sincerely that she'd do her best anyway, and she was pretty sure she could do it. And her face had that same pursed lip look, only without the water or the washcloth or the afterglow. The temperature never really got cold enough for it, but after a first dinner of thick beef stew, flavored with wine, and filled with thumb-sized cuts of celery, onion, potato, and carrot, and after we stood together at the sink— her washing forks and spoons and plates, and me pretending to help but really sneaking touches and pats and squeezes. 
She would finally command me to build a fire while she finished up.